I like that in Galen's absence, we've decided that this podcast will now be part therapy and part English seminar. He's going to be really excited. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Chad McMatlin, a deputy editor at 538. Galen is off this week, and it's a short week, so we'll have only one episode, the one you're listening to right now. And you're stuck with me for it. The last few years have been rather terrible, don't you think? Two years of an undulating pandemic, over a year of snarling about who really won the presidential election that was actually straightforward, and months of watching consumer prices tick up as wages don't keep up with those ticks. Being happy in America can seem downright radical at times, and yet as many Americans today say they're satisfied with their lives as basically any time over the last few decades, If everything is going wrong, why do some polls find us to be so content? We will discuss. Then we'll look at another surprise. States are rolling in cash. Despite forecasts of budget shortfalls during the pandemic, state governments have billions and billions to spend on their politicians' top priorities, and they're not all spending it the same way. We'll discuss what states' decisions tell us about partisan divides and whether there are any ideological similarities between the parties, as long as there's money to help make things go. And then finally, we'll discuss the big news story of the month ahead, the conflict in Ukraine. As of this recording, Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered Russian forces into eastern Ukraine, essentially claiming two states as part of Russia's sphere of influence. The Biden administration has been warning this possibility for weeks, and much of what comes next will depend on how hard Biden, the EU, and Ukraine choose to push back. We'll discuss what average citizens want and just how much of an effect that has on what politicians actually do. And here with me to do all that and talk about surely more than just that are a panel of my very astute colleagues. First, there's our managing editor, Micah Cohen. Hi, Micah. Hello, Chad. Props to working the word undulating into the lead. Very nice. You know, got to put a little your personal <laughs> personal touch when you guest host. And then there's our senior reporter, Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hi, Amelia. Hey, Chad. And then a new voice for all of you listeners, our newest senior political writer, Monica Potts. Uh, is with us today. Monica joined us a few weeks ago, and we've been eager to have her on the podcast. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yay. Yay, Monica. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Yay. (laughs) Monica, maybe you could tell us all what you're going to be working on for 538. Yeah, so I'm going to be working on a lot of pieces sort of at the intersection of politics and culture, which is going to look at demographics and the rural-urban divide, um, and also just how people are really doing and how they are really feeling and how they make decisions and what they mean when they say certain things to bolsters, sort of getting into the what that means on the ground. And are we allowed to talk about the book that you've written and are waiting to publish? Is is that allowed or is that top secret we shouldn't talk about on the podcast? It's not top secret, but um, it's forthcoming from Penguin Random House. It is called The Forgotten Girls. I think there's going to be a subtitle that I do not know yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Excellent. What's about? It's a memoir of me and my childhood best friend. I grew up in rural Arkansas, which is where I live now. And I left to go to college and uh, she did not. And so it's about me coming back to find her and tracing the ways our lives turned out differently and also kind of the same in some ways. Great. All right. Um, Very excited to talk over the many months to come on this show about politics, your book, et cetera. Let's get into the show proper, guys. So last week, 538 staffers could not stop talking about a series of tweets from The Atlantic's Derek Thompson. And yes, that is the kind of thing that really gets our engines revving at 538. Thompson shared a recent poll from Gallup that found 85% of Americans are satisfied with their own lives, which is more or less in line with where that number has been at any point in the last few decades. But only 17% are satisfied with the way that things are going in the U.S. And so what I wanted to talk about was how much we can really learn from a poll like this. Thompson had a number of interpretations that we can run through. But first, I thought we could maybe reveal our own biases on this question. Micah, I will start with you. Are you more satisfied with your personal life than with the direction of the country. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, 
you know, there are some things in my personal life that that could be improved. No, I, I thought I thought it'd be funny if if I tried to derail the entire podcast with a discussion of my personal life. Um, we no, can just make this a self help podcast, Micah. Do you want to yeah. just like share all your problems? And yeah, we'll give you Est- Esther Perel wasn't available. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we're just as good. This could be a therapy podcast now. We should transition into that. I think it would be helpful. No, yeah, absolutely. My personal life is going better than the country's personal life or the country's outlook. The country's outlook is is a show. Um, That's a really low bar. I think that's part of what's going on here. Amelia, Monica, I assume you feel the same, that neither of you are feeling really more optimistic about the country than you are about your own life. I mean, that would sort of be a bleak way to live, right? (laughs) Like, I think sort of psychologically, if you think the country is doing better than you are personally, I mean, I guess, you know, there could be like a situation where you feel like everyone else is doing better and you're not. And, you know, but then, but then I feel like that's connected to how you feel like the country is doing too. So it does feel hard to have a situation where you would say that your personal life is doing worse. I don't know. Of course, I'm sure some people did say it, but. It seems like probably not the predominant view. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it would be possible to live that way. Something would break first <laughs> and you wouldn't be talking to pollsters on the phone if that were true. <laughs> well, and this question of like what you would tell a pollster, I think is at the heart of this, which, which we'll get to in a second. But this is sort of a good use and bad use of polling segment, essentially. And so I, I'm wondering what we can rely on when people are talking about happiness to a stranger. And, and this gets at the heart of conversations we've had across shy Trump voters and, and other things as well, sort of how much trust people are willing to put in pollsters in general. And, and I'm wondering, let's just take the personal satisfaction right now. We read headlines all the time about how difficult life is for Americans. Is there actually a disconnect between being personally satisfied about one's life and things being difficult in America for Americans? Or are we conflating by combining those two things? No, I, th- I think there is a disconnect. I think kind of as Amelia and, and Monica were saying, people are resilient and and just like what it takes to to cope, you you have to put a positive spin on things and and have hope for the future and it requires kind of separating yourself out from the larger forces at work even if those forces are largely negative. You know, it's like that everybody's the protagonist in their own movie, right? The movie, you know, you you want to have a happy ending, but they're not totally separate, right? Like even these two questions, personal satisfaction and satisfaction with the direction of the country, the personal satisfaction line barely moves, but it does move. And it actually moves in correlation with the satisfaction with the direction of the country line. And even more than that, if you look below that top line for personal satisfaction, and get into the very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, if you break those out into two lines, then you really see there's not actually a contradiction in in these two things. I think you're just seeing people think the country is in a really bad spot. People themselves are pretty resilient, but they're not totally unrelated and, and people's personal lives are affected by these bigger trends. I've been thinking about this a lot because when we first started having a conversation about this poll and especially the way that the contrast that, Micah, you were talking about was framed, I'll be real, I was a little steamed. (laughs) I saw that the personal satisfaction line, you know, there really wasn't that much movement in it. As Micah was saying, it like goes up and down a little bit depending on how the country is doing. But you look at like recession, still people are saying overwhelmingly satisfied in their personal life. So I kind of looked at that question and I was like, okay, what is this actually telling us? Is this really telling us much of anything? But I do think there is maybe a a better way to think about the way these two questions work together, which is that I think the political question can be a place where people project some of that external dissatisfaction that they have in their lives. So they might be thinking, you know, things are still good in my relationships. Like I still love my kids. I'm happy in my community. You know, the things around me in my everyday life as much as they can be in a pandemic, you know, like things are are difficult, but we're still sort of moving forward and coping and getting by and finding joy and in the little things that make all our lives meaningful. But things around you that are going wrong 
you can sort of project that onto the larger country isn't going the way I want. So inflation is happening. That's the country going in a bad direction. Um, My wages aren't matching inflation. That's the country going in a bad direction. I'm having trouble buying a house. That's something that's happening more broadly in the country. And so I think almost the way that the questions are worded, it kind of invites people to separate them and to think about the more macro level problems that we're all experiencing as being something that has more to do with the direction of the country than the things that are really personal to you and are sort of unique to your life and that are probably more stable and more constant and also sort of more fulfilling and nourishing. Um, I can't believe I just said the word nourishing. Wow, this should be, this This is now a therapy podcast, um, officially. I've decided, Galen comes back, it's just therapy. Yeah, but I, I think that distinction, you know, I don't think people are, are like thinking about that when they're answering the question, but the wording of the question kind of implicitly invites people to answer it that way. People also tend to, um, when they look at outside forces that may be bad, they also tend to underestimate the extent to which that will affect them in their futures and overestimate the likeliness of a positive outcome in their own lives. So they may be like, well, COVID's around, um, but I'm not going to die of COVID. Or I lost my job, but I'm going to find another job. It's called the optimism bias. And actually, like, I think that usually around 80% of people at any given time have are kind of like unrealistically optimistic about their own lives, which may be part of what that's picking up, you know, it's just, I'm going to be okay. Maybe things are not exactly the way I want them right now, but my life is fine and I'm going to be okay. And satisfied is also a pretty low bar. So, you know, there might be things in your life that you think will get better down the road, but you're still pretty satisfied that they're there now. So I think about that especially with COVID, it can be a healthy psychological setting to be a little optimistic about your future, but it also can be kind of dangerous if you underestimate risk. What's that uh, famous stat that like 95% of Americans think they have above average IQ? It's like some crazy, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, to your point, Monica. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, Monica, because we've, we've done some work on the site about the eviction crisis that was forecast and never really came to be, at least according to the data and why that might be. And one of the findings that the researchers who are housing experts made was that people tend to be particularly nervous about financial outcomes and sort of dread that they might not be able to afford rent, for example. But maybe that's something more concrete as opposed to just happiness or am I going to get sick and die, right? That that maybe there's something more, you know, you do know your bank account and you do know what would it mean if, if you lost your job or something like that. I wanted to ask you guys about what you take from this poll, when you combine it with a conversation that Galen had last week, I think it was last week or the week before on the podcast, about how maybe the real person, the real divide in America being between voters who really give a crap and voters who don't care about the broader, Americans don't care about the broader things happening in society. So super politically engaged voters and people who are, who are more sort of just want to go about their lives and appreciate what they have and their friends and their family And I keep thinking about that conversation when I see things like this, because I don't know what these these polls are meant to make politicians think. What should politicians be focusing on if a vast majority of Americans really are satisfied with their life, but are worried about the direction of the country? Does it mean that the most successful policies might be things that make people feel even more appreciative or even more satisfied with their life as opposed to some of the partisan sniping about, you know, the direction of the country in a super macro way. I think that split between the super engaged and the not super engaged doesn't perfectly apply here because I think Amelia's reading of these two questions, personal satisfaction, satisfaction with the direction of the country, Amelia's suggested reading, which is like the personal is political and the political is personal, I think is right, which is like, there's a bias for people to express optimism about their personal circumstances, but they're probably sort of projecting some of maybe pessimism about their personal situation into the national question. So like, I think when we talk about super engaged, not super engaged politically, Chad, we're talking about like people who are have a lot of education, people who follow the political news really closely, but in this case, we've seen this big dive in the share of people who are satisfied with the direction of the country. 
coinciding really with a global pandemic. And the global pandemic, I don't think is something where, well, I don't know, maybe maybe you guys would push back on this, but I don't think it's something that fits that super engaged, not engaged split. I think it's something that's touched everybody's lives in different ways, right? And there's a lots of people who have been like, okay, I'm, I don't want to think about this anymore. But it still crosses that boundary. So in a in a broad sense, like none of these numbers should be really that surprising. I think the personal satisfaction question, there are a couple biases at play there. The one Monica mentioned about the optimism bias, just the bias of like not wanting to dump all your troubles on some stranger on a on the phone. And then the satisfaction with the direction of the country, there's been a global pandemic. Like, why would people be satisfied, right? So I wanted to ask you guys about other polls that ask whether the country is heading in the right direction, which have higher numbers than this, this Gallup poll. Um, so a Suffolk poll from this year found that 30% of Americans said that the country is headed in the right direction, which is significantly higher than the 17% who said they were satisfied with the country in the Gallup poll. And what do you guys think is the right way to ask this question? Is it to talk about satisfaction? Is it to talk about whether we're headed in the right direction, which is something that's future-looking inherently. What's the right way for pollsters to sort of look at the mood ring of Americans, basically? My thing right now is that I wish pollsters were asking more about emotions and trying to get at these questions in different ways. Because I think we have, like, there are sort of these, like, stock trend poll questions that we've been talking about that places like Gallup have been tracking forever. And there's a lot of value in that because you can see how it changes over time. But I think in this moment, when it's so hard to tease apart, especially what people are upset about, it's time to get a little bit more creative in the kinds of questions that people are asking to sort of put a finger on, okay, people are pretty gloomy right now. Is that because we're in a global pandemic? Is it because Congress and and the government seems to not really be working in the ways that people want? Is it because politics is really acrimonious? Is it because people's wages aren't rising and like stuff that's going on with the economy? Are there other things that are going on in people's lives that are fueling this? So I guess my answer to your question, Chad, is like, I, I think just more questions is good. One of the things that I found most frustrating about the Gallup write up was that it took two questions that really could be capturing a lot of different things and walked away with the conclusion that people are happier in their personal lives than they are with the direction of the country. And that that is actually, as you were saying, like a takeaway that politicians, for example, could make anything of. And if you're a person who is actually trying to make Americans' lives better, I don't know what you do with those questions. I think those questions are a starting point to ask more questions, not a solid conclusion. I also am always really curious about... um what people feel that they know about what's happening in the country right now, like what is actually pinging on their radars? What news are they picking up? What kind of actions from Washington do they actually sort of know about and have opinions about before they're asked about that? I also feel that, especially in this age of this kind of bifurcated news environment, that some of the perceived you know, what's happening in the country right now are just completely different for some people versus others. You know, the news that people are getting about what the Biden administration is doing or what Washington is doing can look very different. And so I'm curious, too, about sort of what that perceived reality is before we even ask how people feel about it. I agree with both Amelia and Monica here. And I think both their answers point to something important, which is like part of what is not great use of polling about the Gallup write-up is They offer these two questions and they sort of assume or presuppose, hey, there's some conflict here. What do each of these questions tell us? And I think that's the wrong approach. So I love Amelia's idea of asking people more about emotions. But whatever you ask people, and I I would say ask them about their emotions, ask them, as Monica said, about their understanding of current events and, and things that are affecting their lives But whatever you ask them, and that includes the current slate of default polling questions, I think you have to take a holistic approach to then interpreting that data. I don't think you can look at one question and then the other and be like, hmm, there's some discrepancy here. How can we explain that discrepancy? 
I think each question is sort of like, it's really giving you a very imperfect, very narrow view of the American psyche. And you have to use all the questions to piece a coherent picture together. I mean, there is no American psyche, right? As Monica was saying, people have very different experiences, have very different just circumstances. And so the idea that that we'd have these two simple questions and, and expect agreement there, I think it's just the wrong approach. It's, it's incredibly complicated to try to paint the, I was reading something over the weekend actually that was like, it had the phrase, let's narrativize this. And it's really hard to narrativize public opinion. It's just too, it's too complicated. It's too all over the place. Although again, even those Gallup numbers in that personal life satisfaction Gallup question, the share of people who were very satisfied went from 65 in 2020 to 51 in 21 and 2022. So again, it's like, even that simple question, I think we have seen a clear trend that matches the trend in the US direction, but you need to ask all the questions and then throw them in a, in a salad bowl and, and mix them together. Micah, you, you tied it up too neatly at the end. I was gonna say like, death to the snappy takeaway. That's our motto at 538. And then you, and then you brought in that stuff about the very satisfied trend. Very disappointing. <laughs> well, like there is a snappy takeaway here, at least in my view. The snappy takeaway is, yeah, people don't like pandemics. That's the snappy <laughs> takeaway. Once you get beyond that- we'll Go out th- on a limb. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but that's my point. It's like, <laughs> once you get beyond that, then you ha- then death to the snappy takeaway. But yeah, pe- people don't like pandemics. I think we can show that with polling. <laughs> what a terrible word narrativize is. It's a horrible <laughs> word, Monica, but but to me yes. it it does like speak to an important dynamic in the media, which is like what stories yeah. are we telling ourselves that reach that narrative level? That's a whole side conversation. But I think that's another reason that what Monica was saying about sort of getting the pulse of what people are actually perceiving around them is really important because what you think is actually happening in your reality has a ton to do with the narrative that you tell yourself about like why the country is going downhill or why your personal life is okay. And we are living in a political moment where what people think the government is doing, what's happening with the pandemic, what's happening with the economy. People actually have quite different perceptions of that, both based on their experiences and also what they're hearing from politicians and what they're hearing from the media. So I'm very for just asking more questions and polls that are like, what do you actually think is happening around you? And then adding that as a piece of the analysis, because I think that could help us tease out a little bit more what people are actually meaning when they say, I'm happy with the country going in this direction, or I'm not, or I'm satisfied with my life. Because it's like, what do you actually think is happening in the country? What is What do you see happening in your own life that's informing that answer? So totally agree. And full disclosure, we may do some polling along these lines, but I do think we should include a poll. So actually that- no one else do it. Sorry, my gosh. Yeah, don't. don't- so all in on that. It's don't do that idea. polling. But we should include a question that's just like, what do you think is happening around you? <laughs> and ask and ask the pollster to ask it. Tell that us way. what you see. Yeah, tell yeah, us what yeah. you see. Well, in some ways, what I'm hearing you guys describe is sort of an inversion of what happens when we get crosstabs, so the demographic info of a poll, where we start with the one unified question and then we try and interpret, well, if black Americans thought this or younger generation Americans thought that, then that's the different reality that they're living. But what you guys, what I'm hearing you propose is sort of making that explicit on the front end. And even if that makes the crosstabs or all the different answers a mess, right? Because you'll have all these sort of fractured pathways that, that go, we'll still get closer to the truth because we'll understand the baseline of what people think, that we're acknowledging the different realities before even the main question gets asked, quote unquote. We're creating new demographics, if you will. So instead of saying this demographic is a rural voter, we're saying this demographic are voters who think that the election was stolen and that that creates the domino effect that creates more insight from whatever the actual poll is. So maybe what we really need to do as 538 is create new demographic standard bearers that could help us understand how to 
talk about the different realities that Americans are living. So, of course, Black Americans are living different realities than white Americans in all the ways that we've discussed on this podcast and, and beyond. But what is it the actual concrete worldview is that that could maybe help tease some of that apart? That's super interesting. I'm just trying to think like what the, let's call it perception demographics, perceptual. It's like reality demographics, yeah. right? It's like, like what is view. your lived yeah. reality? Yeah, worldview. Lived reality demographics. But I'm just trying to LRDs. think. LRDs. LRD. Yeah, which LRDs <laughs> as explanatory groupings would be more powerful than demographic demographics, than education, than race, than urban, rural? I guess what what I would I wish more people were doing, Micah, is kind of like stress testing that assumption and yeah. looking, you know, asking some of these questions about perceptions and reality and worldview and seeing do they line up with these demographic categories that we're using because it might be that there's actually a lot of overlap in these questions and to be clear I I sort of hate polls that try to slice and dice the electorate different ways and they're like these are the muddled moderates and you know they come up with these little like (laughs) catchphrases that are actually not that helpful because like you know if, if you do a poll like this you can find you can divide people into any group that you want, basically, just like depending on how the questions are asked. So I don't always think it's more helpful to find new categories. And sometimes I think that's more revealing of the kind of biases of the people who are analyzing the data. But I think it is helpful to do some of these kind of reality checks. And especially at a moment when it does seem like different parts of the country actually do have very different perceptions of reality than other parts of the country. Like my colleague Kaylee Rogers has done so much great reporting about the big lie. Just seeing how those line up with the categories we're using is important. You know what a great example of this is that already exists and that I think we're actually, we've written about before, we have an upcoming article about is this polling question of like how much people perceive there is racial discrimination against white people, which is a incredibly powerful indicator of sort of where you stand, whether you perceive there's, for example, more racial discrimination against white people than other racial groups, explains all your other political views, which I think is an example of kind of these I don't know if that's a lived reality, but perceived reality. Okay, we're going to move on. But listeners, if you have ideas for LRDs that we should, you know, get out into the world, email podcast at com, tweet at Galen, flood Micah's mentions. <laughs> Let, let's make it happen. All right, so let's leave it there for now and move on to talk about state budgets. But first. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. As the pandemic raged in the spring of 2020, politicians warned that states were at real risk of going broke. Businesses shutting down meant a likely loss of tax revenue, and states were spending a significant amount of money on public health and economic measures. In response, politicians passed several rescue plans, and now, two years on, states are flooded with cash. And that cash is just as likely to change Americans' lives as anything that the federal government might buy directly. The cash has been approved by the federal government, of course, and and then handed down to the state governments. And we want to talk about what the states are spending it on and whether it's reshaping our politics or just furthering the same old status quo. 
And Monica, in particular, you've done a lot of reporting on this for the site in the last few weeks. And I was wondering what you found when, when you were going at it. Yeah, so the money that the American Rescue Plan sent out to states was pretty, there were some rules around it, but it was still pretty broad. States could use it for revenue replacement. They could use it to shore up their unemployment insurance trust funds, and they could use it for infrastructure projects. And then they also could use it to address some of the things that happened during the pandemic. And they could use it to solve the problems caused by COVID. And so it was pretty just broadly laid out. And in a lot of instances, states could decide what that meant for them, you know, what the people in their states needed after COVID. And so most states used some of the money for revenue replacement if they could. There was a formula that determined if they could. Most of them put some money into their unemployment insurance trust funds, and most of them used it for some kind of infrastructure project, whether that was broadband, water and sewer, which was one of the big categories laid out by the act, or they used it for other infrastructure projects. So like Florida had um, a highway project that was ongoing and it used some of the money to help build those highways. And a lot of the ways that states spent money didn't really break down along expected partisan lines. Almost all the states used the money, even states who in previous bills had rejected federal money, like for the expansion of Medicaid when the Affordable Care Act passed, um, most states took the money and found ways to spend it so far. Also, the ways that states decided to spend money varied. So some states decided their governor could lay it out in their budget proposals. Some states decided that the legislature should decide. Some states decided that the legislature should create a steering committee and let nonprofits apply for money through grants. So how those kind of needs of their population is determined even varies state by state. I want to get at the revenue shortfall in a second, because Amelia, I know you've reported on the warnings about that in 2020. But real quick, Monica, you mentioned that most states took the money. And I'm wondering from all of you, why do you think the politics of taking money in this moment on a state level has been so different than it was with the Medicaid expansion during Obamacare? The mechanics of it don't seem that different to me. I mean, the partisan divide is just as sharp, if not more so now than it was in 2010 or 11, when, when uh, Affordable Care Act passed. And so what is it about the, pan, I guess, the pandemic that gave Republican governors cover to take the money? First of all, they had a lot of flexibility as to how to spend the money, but also they had to shut down their states. So they sort of felt like that wasn't their fault. The federal government wanted to control the pandemic. And so they had to put a halt to a lot of economic activity. And so it was sort of a forced recession. And so I think that did kind of change the politics a little bit about how to recover from that in a way that sort of a, a different kind of recession might not have had the same response. Monica, do you have a sense of how aware people are that this money was even given to the states? Because my sense was kind of, you know, people I think are broadly aware, well, are definitely broadly aware of things like the stimulus payments because those went into their bank accounts. But there was so much attention to what was happening with the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act was such a lightning rod that I think Medicaid expansion was something that like, whether people were talking about it in those terms, that was very partisan in a way that I think this money hasn't been in part because people just kind of aren't fanning the flames of taking this money. Am, am I wrong about that? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think people are really aware of it. People knew that they got a third stimulus when this bill passed, like you said. But I don't, I'm not sure that people knew all that was in that American Rescue Plan Act, which was huge and very broad. A lot of money went to school districts directly. A lot of money went to cities and local governments directly. And some of that is those county governments and those school districts had a lot of extra costs and a lot of reduced revenue in different situations. And so I really think people felt like it sort of made up for a hole that was caused by the pandemic. And so I don't see situations where people are rallying around the money one way or another. We say that, but the American Rescue Plan was passed on a very partisan vote. I think only two Republicans in the House voted for it. No Republican senators voted for it. So the act of approving the money was very partisan. And so I, I hear you, Amelia, about that there maybe was less attention brought to the money. But isn't that a little bit the choice that politicians get to make, right, about what to bring attention to? And so why is it that despite opposition on the front end, there has not been ongoing pressure once the money was actually approved? 
Well, a lot of those Republicans, despite voting against the individual stimulus payments, were then out there pretty immediately taking credit for it. So I think there's a sense, and this is something that I think is so fascinating, kind of underlies um, Monica's article, even though the act of taking government money is very political when you talk about it that way, when there is an external circumstance that sort of justifies it, like a global pandemic, everyone is kind of happy to take the money. The stimulus was popular. The states are taking the money and spending it. And I do wonder if another thing that differentiates this from Medicaid expansion is that Medicaid expansion benefited a specific group of people who weren't getting Medicaid and and then would be covered under it. And infrastructure, individual stimulus payments, the sort of the big ticket stuff like money for school districts, those are things that you can just kind of sell as like, this is a benefit to the community. And we had a great piece on the site last week, I think, by Alex Samuels and Neil Lewis um, that was sort of exploring how Americans on both sides of the aisle just have a lot of trouble kind of just giving benefits to specific groups of poorer and marginalized people specifically. And it's just much easier to sort of say like, okay, we're going to do this thing that kind of benefits everyone or benefits school children or benefits these kind of big groups of people, whereas more targeted aid tends to be more controversial. And obviously there was very targeted aid in this funding, but it was filtered down through so many different groups of people that like by the time it gets to a food bank, I think it's just like, you know, that's not politically meaningful. When you get to the point that things are filtered down to local communities also, there is a disconnect about where that money came from and who determined how it was going to be spent. Like during the pandemic, you know, the area I live in is extremely rural. The USDA, which monitors the school lunch program, waived rules about allowing kids to take food off school campuses. And so a lot of local schools instituted programs where they could pass out packaged lunches to kids on their bus routes. And so that's what they did. And everybody was like, look at how great the schools are. Look at look at our, our local schools care so much about the community. Um, and that is true. They do. But all of that is kind of a federal initiative. But it's not like people say, oh, the federal government did this. They say, oh, look at our local bus drivers. We love them so much, which is totally fine. It's just the way that people process information. It's like the opposite of shooting the messenger. Yeah. They use the <laughs> specific messenger and you ignore the actual source. So first of all, I think the politics of stimulus money have changed a bit over the past 10 years or so, where it feels like, for example, once COVID hit, the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress signed up for stimulus money much more quickly than they did during the Great Recession. So I think things shifted a little bit there. Now, they've then uh, stopped doing that, especially once Biden got into office. Republicans have mostly voted against that stimulus money. But the part Amelia mentioned about how is the money messaged, how much is it targeted, I think is really important and and kind of speaks to that piece Alex and Neil wrote, where maybe it leads to better outcomes. If you're trying to help marginalized groups, you sort of have to just be like, hey, states, here's a shitload of money. Do with it what you will. And as Monica was saying earlier, the states have spent a good deal of it on unemployment, for example, unemployment insurance and similar social safety net programs. Now, they have also spent some of it on like Alabama built a couple prisons, right, Monica? Like It's going to, yeah. There's a bunch of other stuff in there. But if you're trying to get money to people who need it, given the current politics of our country, maybe that's the way you have to do it so that that money can't be essentially demagogued and racialized in that way where it's like this money is going to those people and then support for it collapses. That might be true on some in some spending categories, like to the extent with water and sewer infrastructure, to the extent that some communities needed more infrastructure improvement than others, then you'll see some sort of um, 
uh, you'll see, you know, more benefits from community for communities that needed it more than others. But I will also say that some of the decisions made by states were sort of against the federal government's priorities. And so, like a lot of states led by Republican governors, they ended the enhanced unemployment programs early. Arkansas did, Oklahoma did. And Oklahoma is one of the states that also had a back-to-work bonus in the summer. And some of those states did not have vaccine mandates for employment. Employers. And so you did have a situation in the summer during the Delta surge where a lot of people simultaneously lost their enhanced unemployment or their unemployment altogether because they'd timed out, had to go back to work, were incentivized to go back to work, and were not incentivized to get vaccinated. So if the goal of the federal government was to sort of control the pandemic and recover from it, there weren't really mechanisms to make sure that that's exactly how states used all of the money. So, Amelia, in 2020, you wrote about the coming revenue apocalypse that that governors feared, where the shutdowns would really limit the tax revenue available to them. And now here we are going into a midterm year where there is a lot more money floating around. And and as a result, maybe we might see campaign promises that are more ambitious or at least more achievable in their ambition than, than maybe otherwise. And I'm wondering, as you look back on the work that you did two years prior, and as you've thought about things like expiring child tax credits and expiring benefit programs that, that were passed during the pandemic, what can we learn now, given the way that this money is affecting state government and state politics, that maybe we couldn't know two years prior when we didn't know how all this would turn out? It's so interesting to go back and look at that piece that I wrote two years ago, because basically when I was talking to experts in state politics and then also people who just study the very exciting realm of state revenues and budgets, there was a real fear that we were going to be heading for essentially a repeat of the Great Recession, where there was not a lot of aid to the states Tax revenues fell, states raised taxes, they cut back a ton on things like higher education. And when that happens, it kind of prolongs the economic downturn that you're in because, you know, it kind of makes sense intuitively. If states are raising taxes, then people have less money to spend on things. And if they are cutting down on education, then teachers are getting fired. And it was something that contributed to what we saw in the last recession, which was just this very slow grinding recovery. And states had really only just gotten back to their pre-recession normal by the time the pandemic hit. And so there was a real fear that, you know, this was going to hit at a point where states already hadn't been investing in things like infrastructure at the level that they would have been for the past 10 years. And education had already really been cut back. So, you know, you're kind of looking at the budget and you're like, geez, we have to cut more. Where do we cut? And a lot of that ends up not have having happened for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of them is that the lesson learned from that recession seems to have translated to policymakers, and they did give a lot more money to states. And so that's interesting to see the way that people looked back at what happened in 2008 and adjusted. Another thing is just that this was an incredibly weird recession because it wasn't one that was caused by economic conditions. Obviously, it was caused by the pandemic, and it was incredibly uneven. And so state tax revenues didn't fall the way that a lot of people thought they would, at least income tax revenues, because the people who were losing their jobs were low-wage workers. So the higher-income workers were still paying income tax, and state tax revenues didn't take the hit that they thought they would. And, you know, we've had all of these supply chain issues, but people have still been out spending money for the past year. So sales taxes aren't taking the hit that I think a lot of people expected when we saw the whole economy shut down. So you combine those two things and we're in a situation where states really aren't in the dire condition that they were in 2008 or that a lot of people were fearing two years ago. And I do think it raises interesting questions about what happens when you have more benefits, basically. Something like the child tax credit is a good example, I think. Um, People were getting $300 a month for a period of time if they had kids or per each kid, and then you take them away. And so I think with states spending more money on infrastructure, you know, people not getting that 
money in their bank account. It'll it'll just be interesting to see what happens when we actually do flood all this money into the economy and the government also starts spending more money on social services. And then that money dries up. The money the states have isn't infinite. Will people be mad about it? I don't know. I think something like the child tax credit, that's a lot more direct. You see that in your bank account than something like, you know, maybe local food banks don't have as much money. And like Monica was saying, like, do you really trace that back up to the federal government? I don't think so. So, Monica, real quick before we move on to the next segment, do you think this will have any impact on the midterms? If the states were less flush with cash, would the political outlook be different for incumbent governors, for example? Or or is this sort of so diffuse that it doesn't quite matter in the same way? Yeah, I don't know if it matters in the same way. I don't know if people will connect like their governor's actions to the recovery or, you know, their local politicians' actions to the recovery in the way that we might expect. I do think inflation is the thing that's weighing on people the most right now. It's what they feel in a very visceral way when they get gas or go to the store. And so even if your state has a balanced budget and is funding all these programs that help you, you might not necessarily think the economy is doing great because you're paying more in a way that you can visually see on your receipts every week. It's so diffuse and it's so disconnected from people's everyday lives, these kinds of decisions in a lot of ways. Yeah, and in that respect, I guess the money being put into the the economy might affect things, but mainly perhaps through inflation, depending on how much of a connection there is there. Okay, so let's leave it there and move on to our final segment of the day. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Over the weekend, Europe slipped ever closer toward war as Russian President Vladimir Putin sent Russian troops into two Ukrainian territories. Outside observers see this as a pretext for a further military incursion on Ukrainian sovereignty, and Western sanctions against Russia have already begun. As we record on Tuesday, it's unclear what happens next, but part of what may determine leaders' actions is what their constituents think. So let's discuss where things stand now. So CBS News and YouGov did a poll asking, when it comes to negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, the U.S. should, dot, 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 either stay out, support Ukraine, or support Russia. This was done, by the way, about a week and a half ago on on February 11th, or that's when it came out. And so 53% of Americans said the U.S. should stay out. 43% said that uh, America should support Ukraine. And 4% said support Russia. Anything surprising for you guys there? Is that sort of where you expected the breakdown to come? I think generally speaking, opinion on on sort of U.S. involvement in Ukraine has broken down basically like we would expect it currently, right? Like public opinion about U.S. intervention overseas has just become far more anti-interventionist over the past 15, 20 years than it used to be to the point where You see in most of these polling questions, the options are like most polls are not really asking about U.S. military involvement proper. They're asking about sending weapons to Ukraine. They're asking about sanctions. Right. I just think the last two decades, U.S. public opinion has shifted way to the left on foreign intervention. And it's it's not hard to find reasons why. Right. You look at Iraq, you look at you look at Afghanistan So we're in a spot now where I think the Biden administration and look, I'm not a foreign policy expert, so please, please, please keep that caveat in mind. But where the Biden administration, the American people, Putin, Ukraine, NATO all basically know there's a hard line around what the U.S. is likely to do here. And that hard line is well short of boots on the ground in any large numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think public opinion has, you know, it's exactly what I thought it would be, of course. (laughs) 
struggled a little bit with public opinion on the Ukraine crisis in a lot of the way that I struggle with public opinion polls on foreign policy generally, because people just don't pay as much attention to it. And so I think it can be harder to know what people think the question actually is. And I think that ties into to what you were saying, Micah, which is that there does seem to have been much more of an anti-interventionist shift among the American people overall when it comes to foreign conflicts. But I'm not sure I can necessarily tell from these questions that I understand what the American people want the Biden administration to do. And I think, in fact, a lot of people would not really have an opinion about of like whether weapons get sent to a particular place or what sort of stance the Biden administration should take in negotiations. I think that's one of the tricky things about these questions is that with diplomacy, it's so technical, it's hard to ask people to come down on one side or the other. And so when I see something like a majority of Americans say that the U.S. should stay out of negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, I don't really know what to make of that because I'm not sure those 53% are actually saying stay out of diplomacy or are they saying stay out of getting the U.S. more tangibly involved? Well, it's just too complicated of a subject to expect everyday Americans to have like sophisticated views on it. The other thing, though, is to your point, Amelia, if you look at the polling, it's not really consistent. I think the Biden administration, I don't know that it's in an no-win situation, but I think it's a very tough situation for the Biden administration politically. Obviously, there are far more important concerns than like the political ramifications in the U.S. of this. But I think people probably generally are supportive of standing up to Russia, whatever that means. And it's important that that's vague and people support the vague concept there. But I don't think the American people will support or at least say they support steps that would actually constrain Russia. I don't think really they support much beyond sanctions. And so then if Putin invades Ukraine, and I think the Biden administration will suffer politically for that, even though the American people, likely a majority, didn't want Biden to really do anything to prevent it. Yeah, I was just going to say people don't know what to do. And also, it's it's no surprise, I think, that people are very war-weary. And, you know, I'm thinking, too, about some of these polls now are probably picking up people who've spent their whole t- entire lives while America's been at war, for the most part, in Afghanistan and Iraq. I feel a little bit about this situation as I did about Syria, which was that, uh, at the time, which was that something ba- very bad is happening, and I have no idea what role America should play in this. And there were all these very smart people all saying opposite things. And so I'm sure people who pay less attention to international news feel worse about it or less certain about it. It's such a good point. I've had that same feeling. So I think this is often framed in Cold War terms, that it's the West facing off against Russia. And obviously there are big problems with that framing because this is really about the sovereignty of a country, Ukraine. But I would imagine that people who did not live through the Cold War are going to see this very differently than people who did live through the Cold War. And that some of the language and views toward Russia and latent fears of Russian aggression, it's just going to kind of press different buttons for people depending on the historical experience they have and the historical memory. And I'm sure that that is tied up in some of these questions in a way that that, again, is very hard to tease out from sort of a, a surface-level assessment. Well, and sure enough, Amelia, in an Economist YouGov poll, half of Americans 45 or older viewed Russia as an enemy of the U.S., so essentially some remnant of the Cold War in their lifespan, maybe when they were kids, while only around a quarter, so about half of that, of those under 45 said that Russia was an enemy of the U.S. So you see some of that generational breakdown potentially there as well. What I'm hearing you guys say, which which I think is interesting, is there's sort of a paradox of how much public opinion actually can tell us about something like this. Micah, you point out that the drift away from interventionism is really significant for politicians. They aren't willing to cross that line any longer, in part because of the reaction of the American people. Obviously, events have conspired to do that. However, within the granularity of what to do about a certain situation, once you take that as a stricture, as a border of what you can do, then you have something where maybe the public opinion doesn't tell us as much beyond those broad outlines. Yeah, that's really interesting. I 
I don't think the Biden administration, as they're trying to figure out what to do, is like looking at public opinion polls, really. I very much doubt that. I mean, their political people are, I'm sure, right? But in terms of like the people actually figuring out what are we going to do here, I don't think they're they're looking at polls. And I think like foreign policy, generally speaking, short of war, doesn't have a lot of salience in terms of American vote choice. And so it's just, it's less of a factor here in, in an administration's decision-making. But your point, Chad, about, or your rephrasing of my point about the shift in the Overton window of like what's possible here, does that come strictly from public opinion? It's a good question because the public opinion shifted because of real world events. So it's possible maybe the political actors have just learned their lesson. Actually, this morning I was trying to think of like U.S. foreign interventions that in retrospect you would just declare successful. And that's pretty challenging, actually. So maybe it's just like we've reached a point where we have a better grasp of how useful those type of military interventions are. Or maybe public opinion has shifted and the Biden administration, you know, is constrained by that or probably both, right? This goes beyond the amount of time we have available and (laughs) some of our expertise. But it is also the case that the nature of war has changed over the last several decades. And the operation to kill Osama bin Laden happened within Pakistan's borders and violated theoretically Pakistan's sovereignty. But we don't think of it that way because it was a much more targeted strike and it was within a broader war effort, right? And so, like, I think there are certain military operations that people would say were successful in retrospect, but maybe not full out invasions or, or wars that have maybe that, that same, because those have more significant salience and severity to them, obviously. And I do think one of the interesting things about the political response to the Ukraine crisis in the, in the U.S. has been that there's been this sort of weird bifurcation between Republicans, where in previous not too far away times, you would have expected Republicans to say, like, yes, this is a Russian incursion on another country's sovereignty and we need to do something about it. But we've seen some Republicans and we've seen people like Tucker Carlson on the right saying, you know, uh, no, like maybe Russia's not so bad. And, you know, obviously that comes after years of Trump saying all kinds of adulatory, is that a word? Like Trump praising Putin. So I do think that the politics specifically around Russia have also changed in interesting ways. And I think if we're talking about how public opinion affects the way politicians respond, those people are not really in decision-making roles. So I think it's a little bit easier for them to say like, oh, you know, people are perceiving this differently or they're shaping the way people are perceiving it. I mean, it's all kind of a loop. But I think among Republicans, it's been easier to frame this a little more in terms of public opinion, just because they're, you know, it's the Biden administration is the ones that's really dealing with this at this point. Um, And Republicans can just kind of react and they're not as much on the hook for figuring out what actually to do. Adulatory feels like more of a word than narrativizing for what it's worth. I think if we're going to- Thanks, Chad. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. (laughs) It fits that narrativizing is an annoying word because what it means is an annoying process too. It's also annoying. (laughs) And yet it's the thing that the media does every day. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. Our jobs, an annoying process. (laughs) Thanks for listening. (laughs) Is there a word for like onomatopoeia, but for meaning? Or is that just onomatopoeia? Wow. I think you're describing what onomatopoeia is. Yeah, it like exploded my brain a little bit. And then I was like, why? Because that's what that is. (laughs) You're saying that narrativizing is annoying. Therefore, the definition of it is to be annoying. (laughs) Because the word narrativizing sounds annoying. Yeah, it's like if a word evokes the same feeling that the definition of that word evokes, is there a word for that? So like splash is onomatopoeic. Yes. Narrativizing is not onomatopoeic in that way. Right. You're talking about what it inspires, the mood it inspires as opposed to the sound. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to look this up, but I feel like there's a word for the opposite when a word, the way a word sounds doesn't match up with its meaning, like bucolic, which sounds like a disease that means like pastoral. I will have to look this up, but because I feel like there's a word to describe that disconnect when words sound not like what they mean. So we need that word and then we'll just put an anti in front of it. We'll put the opposite. Yeah. I like that in Galen's absence, we've decided that this podcast will now be part therapy and part... English seminar. Um, he's going to be really excited. <laughs> I love these conversations. <laughs> I lo- <laughs> yeah, it's just fun. Narrative. Should be a journalist, Micah. 
Yeah, I should work with words. Narrativizing <laughs> is a annoying, pretentious word for an annoying, pretentious process. It's which you have brought to us, Micah. So you have brought us this annoying, pretentious thing. <laughs> and brought it up repeatedly over yeah. and over again. <laughs> yeah, which is also perfect. All right, let's leave it there now that we're not actually talking about politics anymore. And that's the show. Thanks, guys, for, for chatting. Uh, Micah, thanks for bringing so many new terms and, and words to us this afternoon. Great job hosting, Chad. Thank you so much. Put it in my performance review. Uh, Amelia, thank you for chatting about politics today. Thanks, Chad. And Monica, I hope we have you on again so soon. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. My name is Chad McMatlin. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegare-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at 538.com. We want to hear those LRDs. Send them in. You can also, of course, tweet at Galen with questions or comments. Leave me out of it, though. And if you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the podcast app of your choice. Spotify has reviews now. They have stars, but no actual reviews. So just give us the stars. Um, Or tell someone about us. That does even more to help people discover the show. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Galen will be back next week. Bye.